Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth, and we're pleased to have Denise Logan with us today. Denise has worked with business owners throughout the United States and Canada, and has made a huge difference in some business transitions that occurred, and uh, sometimes she's referred to as the seller whisperer. So, Denise, we're glad to have you with us today. Thanks for including me, Bob. It's so nice to be with you. Great. Well, why don't you share with our listeners uh, your business and educational background and, and uh, what led you into this business of helping dental practice owners and advisors navigate their practice sale journeys? You know, Bob, I started my professional life as a mental health professional, and then I became a lawyer. And I always say, for heaven's sake, why didn't I use that mental health work to keep me from becoming a lawyer? <laughs> and so I built a law firm in Washington, D.C., and when we reached a large enough size, I realized I would rather put a stick in my eye than go to work one more day. And so I did a super ugly, choppy exit from my own business and bought a motorhome and ran off for what I thought would be six months, but turned into several years. And when I came off the road, I joined a friend's business who was preparing it for sale. And what we saw was over the 10 years that I was there, we took that business to the market three times and the owner found it difficult to let go. He never did sell that business. So after 10 years, I spun off and did a research study to try to figure out why business owners get stuck on their exit and what makes it hard for them to let go when it's time. And from there, I started working one-on-one with business owners and their advisors and eventually wrote a book called The Seller's Journey and have been out on the road speaking and writing about the psychology of business owners and how to make it easier when it's time for them to let go and retire. Wonderful. Well, of course, the the big topic of the day, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and something a lot of practice owners don't think about, and practice sellers may not think that much about, but it is our topic of the day, and it's actually, believe it or not, more important than selling price at some other factors sometimes, is seller psychology. So I know that you've spent a lot of time on this, and we could spend hours on this subject, but today I know that you're prepared specifically to hit some of the high points on this subject. So let's start off with what is the lizard brain and how does it affect practice sales? Oh, that's so fun, Bob. You know, I the way our brain is wired, 
There's an older part of our brain, it's the fear sensor. It's often referred to as the lizard brain. It's the part that is focused on keeping us safe. So if you imagine, if we just used your hand as a visual description, think about how the thumb is like the amygdala. That word is what we call, that's the technical term for the lizard brain. It's the oldest part of our brain, it's always scanning the environment, looking for danger. So if when you were a little boy, you were attacked by a big black bear, the lizard brain would see a big black dog and assume that it's a bear and signal you to run. So that part of our brain is always trying to keep us safe, but it's kind of stupid. That part of our brain can't tell the difference between real danger and imaginary danger. So it'll do things like scare us when it's time to let go of our business. Interesting. Well, that can be a scary time, and uh, and a lot of it depends on how <clears throat> practice owners prepare for it, and that's why we're talking about it today. So how do you navigate the conversation about what work provides for a, a dental practice owner, uh, and, and what exactly does that mean? You know, it's interesting. This ties so well into what happens for our poor lizard brain, right? So... Sometimes we think that work is what provides us money, and that's one part of what our work provides. But honestly, it provides probably a dozen other things. If you and I were to think about it, Bob, we would see that work provides, if we take money off the table, because of course our work provides money, but for many of us, it also provides structure, a place to go during the day, to be away from our spouse and kids. It provides friendship. For many of our owners who are listening, they'll realize that their customers, their patients, their employees are all friends. What other things might work provide for us, right? A sense of power. At work, we say we want something done. Generally, it happens. At home, maybe not so much. It also provides us a place in our community. So what I typically suggest to an owner is that they start thinking about, create a list of 10 or 12 things that work provides for you other than the money. The reason that's important is just because you get a big sack of cash, those things that work provides for you, those needs don't go away. One of the most important ways for an owner to be able to successfully navigate that exit is to begin preparing for where those needs will get met somewhere else. Wow, that sounds like great advice. Um, and it could be used in, in lots of different industries, but so much so in dentistry where many of the, um, what would be in a general business customers are uh, actually patients, and those are a lot of personal friendships too. You know, one thing about practice owners, when they uh, are reaching the end of their career, they, they get into this, uh, sometimes they talk about, well, one more year or two more years, or, you know, and it, and it goes on and on. So there's this, um, oh my, one more year syndrome. How do you, how do you spot that, and, and how do you address that? 
Yeah, I often refer to it as the oh my syndrome. And oh my stands for one more year. So when I hear an owner say, just one more year, what I know are those needs that we just talked about that are getting met by work, those things are probably starting to surface for them and they don't know where else to get those met. You know, for many of our owners and especially for dentists, there is that when you realize that you're going to miss parts of your work, often our friends and family are not all that empathetic. They ever focused on the economics of it. Well, you're going to get a big old amount of money. That should make you happy. I mean, I, even in exiting my own business, what I realized was as I got closer to that exit, I started to recognize there were lots of things that I was getting from work that I wasn't necessarily going to get met on the other side. And I had to find ways. Can I tell you the story of one client that might put that into perspective? Sure, please do. And even though this story is not about a dentist, I think your listeners will be able to make sense of it. So, and it happens whether we are older or younger. As we start to exit our business, there are lots of things that come up. So this particular fellow, his name was Michael, and he was in his 30s. And as he was exiting his business, he was going to net $16 million on the other side of the sale. So you'll notice that the money isn't the thing that was holding him up. And one day he realized, who am I going to hang out with? All my buddies have jobs. So he was off shooting pool with his best friend, and he said that, to which his best friend replied, boo-hoo, dude, I wish I had your sad little $16 million problem. What happened for Michael then was that now he felt ashamed. He felt ashamed about the things he was worried about, and those went underground. And he started saying, you know, I think I just need another year in the business. And so what I recognize is often when an owner starts to struggle with those things and they don't know who they can talk to them about, they'll say, I need more time. It's not about the time. It's about understanding what's really going on under the surface and how we can help them navigate it. Very interesting. Well, one thing that um, I don't think most practice owners would admit uh, I know I did a national survey and, and I published the results in um, one of the, uh, in Dental Economics Magazine. Uh, but it, it's a question that a lot of um, dentists probably think about is who are they if they're not practicing dentistry? Most dentists, if you like in my survey, would say, you know, there's more to me than dentistry. Uh, but but is there really? And, and who are they? Uh, How is this question relevant when it comes to selling? And what would your advice be to practice owners so they don't get trapped in their businesses and miss out on the other important parts of life? It was exactly one of the things that made me leave my own practice of law. So I had been part of this trade organization for many years. And, you know, they had a, an event where they brought together all of the board members and they were going to do a team building exercise. I imagine right now plenty of your listeners are rolling their eyes. There's no one who's excited about doing a team building exercise. So it was a Tuesday night in a ballroom in Alexandria, Virginia. And this facilitator said, 
I'm going to have you all stand in a circle. Oh, we're already thrilled, aren't we? The thought of standing in a circle facing our peers. And I want you to introduce yourself not using a traditional moniker. So I couldn't say, I'm Denise, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a lawyer. I had to say something else that was about me. And I thought, well, like what? (laughs) The fact I'm running my practice is enough. So as the first person spoke, she said, I play hospice. I play the harp at the bedside of dying in hospice. And I was like, well, that's something. And then the next guy in the circle was rebuilding an antique car and a storage facility as a surprise for his son's 16th birthday. And I thought, well, that's something. And as it started moving more and more around the circle, I realized, uh uh-oh, I don't really have anything else to say other than I'm a lawyer. My practice had taken over my life. So can I tell you, this is a little embarrassing, but I'll tell it anyway. It'll just be a secret between you and me and your listeners. So as it got closer to me, I started perspiring a little bit because I realized I'm, I don't know who I am without my business. So I took my purse and I excused myself to go to the ladies' room. And as I left the ballroom, to the right was the ladies' room. To the left was the exit to the parking lot. I left. I completely bailed on this event and got in my car. I was terrified that who was I other than my business? And that moment changed a lot for me. I realized long before I exited my business, I need to start preparing for who else am I? Our identity is such an important and big part of our professional lives. Well, you know, you could have answered, I'm Denise and I like grilled cheese sandwiches, but that probably wouldn't uh, (laughs) suffice. Um, But look at that, right? If we go back, you know, Bob, to the simple piece that we began with, what does work provide for us? How might I get those same needs met in other ways? That's a beginning to answering the question of who am I? If work is where I get my intellectual stimulation, Might I join a book club? Might I join a discussion group? Where are the places that my identity that I'm getting met in my practice can also be met outside? That helps owners to be prepared to let go more. Very good. Well, Denise, you wrote a book called The Seller's Journey. I read it. It's outstanding. It's a book for listeners. I think all our listeners would benefit uh, from getting it and reading it. Um, In the book, there are two things that are addressed uh, in this um, pseudo um, realistic drama, fiction drama, whatever, uh, business uh, story. And first would be the tangible goals for transitioning a business to new ownership. Uh, They become obvious in the book. But as this drama unfolds in your book, intangible goals are revealed as being more important. The failure to identify and address these secondary factors results in many business sale failures. I know that we've seen that. You've made a career of ensuring deals don't die because of forgetting the second goal. So could you please share with us why people tend to admit or ignore the personal growth and emotional side of the practice sale journey? You know, Bob, the the seller's journey, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about why I wrote it the way I did. 
It's written as a business fable. It's the story of an owner one year after he exits his business. And he goes on a trip across Glacier National Park with the advisors who helped him exit his business. So the in his particular instance, it was an investment banker, but it could just as easily have been a practice broker, his lawyer, his wealth manager, and the buyer of his firm. And I'll bet right now plenty of your listeners are like, who would want to go on a trip with them? But as they cross the glacier, they're relating the physical obstacles that they face to the emotional obstacles that he faced in preparing and letting go of his business. I wrote the book that way because I think it's so easy for us as owners to be focused on running our practice. It's time consuming and it is in many ways all consuming. And so if we can begin to think about what are those things that could hang us up, it prepares us better. The reason many of us don't even think about the exit is no one is talking to us about it, right? If you think exiting a business is in many ways like launching our children. We don't wait until the day our children turn 18 and then say, so what are you going to do with yourself now? We prepare them long before that day. And yet as business owners, there is this myth that somehow when it's time for us to leave, we will know how to do it and do it well. And for many owners, when we get close to that time and we realize we have no clue, we don't know how to let go, we mistakenly think we're the only ones. It's one of the main reasons why I wrote the book and wrote it the way I did, to help normalize the emotion that we feel in letting go. Denise, thanks for sharing with us on this first episode with you. And uh, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, could you please share your contact information? Absolutely. My website is denise.logan.com. You can reach me, of course, email me. It's nice and simple, denise at denise.logan.com. And the book is available on the website or also uh, in Kindle and Audible on our friend Amazon. Great. Thanks for having me, Bob. Well, you're welcome. It's our thrill to have you with us today. Catch you next time. <laughs>